28 through 32. And it reads, It will come about after this that I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Does everybody have an outline? Raise your hand if you need one. And uh, Joe Dooley has uh, some copies. I'd like for you to open your Bibles up to uh, the prophetic book, the little three-chapter prophetic book that we call Joel. It's, uh, it's found right before Amos and right after Hosea there in the Old Testament, kind of at the beginning, sort of at the beginning of the, uh, the section on the prophets. You'll keep your hands raised. He'll make sure that, uh, that you get a copy. And what we'll do is begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful that we have another opportunity to come together as Your people and to rejoice in that fact. And to remind ourselves of the greatness of the light that You have called us to. Not just a light that, that is easy. Father, we acknowledge that, that it's not. The life of a disciple who picks up their cross every day and follows Your Son Jesus is not an easy life. But it is an abundant life and it is a life that is filled with blessing and, and richness that we cannot, uh, in our human language, our English language, adequately describe, Father, uh, the, the greatness that we sense it to be. And so we're thankful that when we have these times together to worship and to, to magnify You, not only in our, our souls, but in our minds, and to leave this place, Father, richer in our understanding of, of Scripture and of Your presence in our life and the kind of people that You call us to be. And as we, we think about this little book, Joel, tonight, Father, we're asking that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it and to understand it and to take it home with us tonight and to live with it the rest of the days of our life. Father, thank You for these words. And, and again, Father, we are so thankful for the salvation that comes to us in Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week, uh, Gilbert Perez uh, told me a story that he heard while he was on his recent short-term mission trip to Honduras. Uh, shared it with a bunch of us. And I, I, just, I think it's a wonderful story because of the, 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 the applications of it. But while uh, he was in Honduras, he heard one of the, uh, the evangelists, one of the missionaries that we support down there, talking to a, uh, a young woman about her decision to become a, a disciple of Jesus. And she was kind of hemming and hawing around with it. And so he told her this story about a small village in the country where uh, uh, they, would, they would do cockfighting as, as kind of a popular pastime. And there was a fellow that hosted these fights in his backyard. And lots of people knew about it. Lots of people would show up. It was kind of the, the big thing in that, in that village. And one day a guy with a giant turkey showed up and wanted his turkey to fight one of the big roosters. 
The match was scheduled. The big rooster and the turkey are put into the ring. The bell is rung. And I got to tell you, I, I don't know if they, you know, it's like a boxing match and they ring a bell and the animals fly at each other. But that's kind of what happened. The match is scheduled. The big rooster, the big turkey are put in the ring. The bell is rung. And just as this gigantic rooster is revved up and is ready to attack this turkey, the turkey just lays its head down on the ground. And uh, the owner of the rooster said, what is your turkey doing, man? And the guy that owned the turkey said, well, he's thinking. And I, there's lots of morals to this story, but one of them is it's dangerous not to recognize imminent destruction and do something about it. And that's what we find in the book of Joel. That's the problem that Joel is facing. And quite frankly, the rest of the prophets, for the most part, kind of face the same thing. Now, in, in terms of the, the historical context of Joel, it's a little difficult uh, in, in the early days of Old Testament scholarship, Joel was kind of put at the very beginning of the Old Testament prophets for, uh, for lots of different reasons. Uh, lately, it's been put all the way back to the time when the people have gone into exile and have come back from Babylonian exile. So it's, it's very post-exilic, which means it's probably around 500 B.C. or so. I want to tell you where I place it, and, and, I, and, and for uh, various reasons. Uh, I, I put it uh, probably right before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. You'll remember that there were three sieges of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, 607 B.C., 597, 596 B.C., 586 B.C. Now, I tend to put this somewhere prior to but not long before the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. This verse in chapter 2 and verse 20 seems to indicate that the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem is still in the future. Joel says, But I will remove the northern army, which I think is Babylon, far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate, desolate land, meaning I will send it back into the wilderness, back into the desert from where it came. But the first two sieges of Jerusalem, 606 and 597, I think, have already taken place and people have already gone into exile, Babylonian exile, like Daniel and the prophet Ezekiel have already gone into exile, into, uh, into Babylon because of Joel chapter 3 and verse 2. I will gather all of the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. So sometime between that first and second exile and the final exile with the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, I think that's the period of time that Joel is speaking. And the message of this little book is really, the, the core of it, is the day of the Lord. Let me read you a couple of verses uh, that we, you know, and the day of the Lord is found really throughout these three chapters multiple times, but it will give us an idea of what the day of the Lord is really all about, or the day of Yahweh. Joel chapter 1, verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Doesn't sound very positive. Joel chapter 2 and verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all of the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is what? Coming. Surely it is near. So you've got, um, alas, in chapter 1 verse 15, you've got the land, all of the inhabitants of the land trembling, 
for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Now look at verse 11 of chapter 2. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for, the strong, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can what? Endure it. Joel chapter 2, verses 29 and 31. Part of the reading that Steve just had for us. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, if you've read uh, much of the, the prophetic literature out of Isaiah and places like that, some of the apocalyptic literature, you know, that, that is the, um, the language of, of, of judgment. And then finally, Joel chapter 3 and verse 14 multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of what? Decision. The day of the Lord is an awesome day. It is a day of judgment that is coming, but it is a day that calls God's people when they know that it's coming and it's coming down the pike and it's near and it's a day of trembling and it's a day in which everyone is going to, to, to say alas and there's going to be awesomeness to it that is going to be hard to endure. It is a day of decision. What are you going to do in light of the day of the Lord that's coming? Now, Joel wants the people to understand what's happening around them. One of the things that is very difficult to do, especially in our own day, is when there are events that are happening around us, it's very easy for us to jump to conclusions or to miss the point altogether or to completely misinterpret what's happening around us. One of the ways that the, that the prophets were really helpful to the people of Israel in the north and to south Judah, those two tribes in the south, was to help them to understand and interpret rightly and interpreting rightly and understanding that day to know how to respond to it. And so Joel wants the people to understand what's happening around them, that what's happening is not just bad luck, that they got unlucky for a couple of weeks or a couple of, couple of months, that it's not capricious fate that, you know, fate kind of just rolled the dice and they ended up getting some bad stuff happening to them and that it was not some freak event in nature. Joel, at the very beginning of this book, gives the people the idea or, or helps them to understand that what he's going to be talking about is going to help them understand what's happening in their life, spiritually speaking, and, and in their relationship with God. And so he says in verses 1 through 3, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's day? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. What Joel is saying is that, you know, our tradition as a people is that we talk about the events of God and we pass that on from generation to generation. Father tells sons and sons tell their sons and it goes on for generations and we remind ourselves of these great things, these great words, these great events, these great miraculous theophanies that take place in our life that were authored and, and handled by God. And so that's Joel's way of saying that something really, really big is going to be coming down the road. Now, if you've been in our Wednesday night class um, on, on the, the life and, and uh, teachings of Jesus, one of the things that we always keep hearing Jesus say over and over again, whether He's telling a parable or He's trying to help them to understand what miracles are all about or any part of His teaching, what is it that He says to them to help them understand it? If you have ears, 
let you hear, you know, you, you need to hear it. If you have eyes, you know, you need to see it. That's what Joel is trying to get all of these folk to, to get focused on right now, is to understand that what is happening in front of them is something that they are going to pass on for generations because it is freighted with that much spiritual significance. That's about, it, it's about being spiritually discerning of the things that are happening right there in front of you. Now, the first thing he's going to tell them is that the locust and drought are precursor to armies and siege. Armies and siege. Joel chapter 1, verse 4. When the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And so, basically, Joel is saying, you know, there's going to be a point in which these, these and, and there's a lot of debate among the commentaries about what is actually being meant here. Are they really just attributes of the same kind of locust in the way that they lay devastation to the land? Or are there four different kinds of locusts, maybe some grasshoppers that are mixed in there that's going to come and lay siege to the entire land? But the point that he's making, regardless of what kind of locusts specifically are being talked about, is that these locusts are going to come like a horde and they are going to take a land that is flowing with milk and honey and they're going to turn it into a wasteland. Look at Joel chapter 2 and verse 3. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them and nothing at all escapes them. What, what Joel is trying to help them to understand is that you know, these locusts that are coming are not just going to come and they're just going to be a plague for a couple of days. They are going to lay siege to the land and they are going to destroy it. And what you have right now looks like the Garden of Eden. It is a land that is flowing with milk and honey. But after the locusts have had their way with it, it's going to be a wasteland. There is nothing that is going to escape this. In fact, Joel gets a little uh, sarcastic here in verse 5 when he says, uh, of chapter 1, he says, you know, you guys that like to, to, to get drunk, you drunkards, you know, you're going to have to get on the wagon because there are going to be no grapes for the sweet wine. And then he talks about the fields being ruined and the harvest being destroyed. And on top of the locust devastation, there's going to be a drought. He says in Joel chapter 1, verse 17, the seeds are going to shrivel up under the clods. The storehouses are going to be desolate. The barns are going to be torn down, for the grain is dried up. The circumstances are explained by Joel. He says, The locust horde and its devastation is like the coming of this giant, fierce army. And I think they know exactly what he's talking about. He says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, he says, Before them, the people are in anguish. Now, you can imagine what those great and fierce armies are like when you are inside of a city and you are walled in and that army is laying siege to you. I can remember being in Israel uh, uh, back in, in the, the, uh, the late 1990s, the early 2000s, and on one of the trips going to Masada where the zealots uh, during the time of Jesus were the last ones kind of standing in that war against the Romans. The Pharisees were actually, out of those four philosophies, the Pharisees were the ones that were finally, in the end, were the only ones left standing. But in terms of the fight, those zealots were the last ones. And after, after the destruction to Jerusalem, Rome moves down south to Masada, which is just west to, to, from the Dead Sea, uh, uh, just a couple of miles, and they lay siege to all of those zealots that are holed up in Masada, which is a fortress on top of a plateau. 
And, and for a couple of years, the Romans lay siege. They, they, they put a big rock fence around Masada. And that wasn't for, for uh, uh, you know, to keep, uh, to keep people out. It was to keep people from, from escaping. They put that, that wall around Masada as a sign that the people, those zealots up on top, the Jewish zealots, would see that wall every day and would know that Rome means business. And there's not going to be any surrender. It's going to be war and we are not going to let you out. And day after day, month after month, they watched as the Roman army built that gigantic ramp up the side of that mountain. And it was for many a time of anguish. And, 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 and Joel says, and all their faces turned pale. What they see in front of them and what they know the future is going to look like with this army is going to cause the blood to run from their face, to, to drop from their face. And he says, they run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. And they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. Meaning that they are relentless and they are unstoppable. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. There is discipline and destruction in these rows like, like tractors going through a field. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. And Joel is, is saying all of this to etch in their minds what the coming of that northern army, Babylon, will be like. But in the middle of this description of, of the locust coming and the devastation to the fields and the drought and the seeds and uh, drying up while it's in the ground because there's no rain and the ground being broken with cracks because of lack of moisture and, and, and storehouses being, being um, uh, vacant and barns being torn down because they're useless because of this drought, there is this strange little verse right in the middle. Chapter 1, verse 20. Joel says, even the beasts of the field pant for you. For the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. In the middle of the drought, in the middle of the plague, in the middle of no food, in the middle of no water, in the middle of, of suffering, in the middle of grief, in the middle of devastation, in the middle of this, this, this gigantic natural uh, disaster, disaster to, to nature... Joel says, the beasts of the field pant for God. The beasts of the field in the middle of the devastation to the land pant for God. When they go without water, and when they go without food, when they are thirsty and they, and they are suffering for, for lack of moisture, Joel says, they turn and pant for God. In a manner of speaking, is that not what a fast is, basically? It's doing without, most of the time when we think of fast, it's doing without food. Doing without in order to pant, that is, to hunger and to thirst for God. And at many levels, Joel is trying to get the point across. That God is really in control of creation. You think that you control everything that with your farming technologies, with your irrigation technologies that you can provide for yourself. 
But God is, is, is here showing you that He is powerful, that He is Creator, that He is sovereign, not over, over, only over nature, but He is sovereign over you. And with this kind of devastation and the humbling that it brings to you, will you not recognize that God is great and not trust in anything else but trust in God? Will you not, like the animals, pant for God in this kind of circumstance? And that's why Joel calls for fasting and lamenting. He says in Joel chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. He says, what you, you know, the proper response to understanding how you have strayed from God and, and, and God has shown Himself powerful in your life is, is to grieve your spiritual state. Now, can you imagine how, how devastating it, it, it is for a young virgin and all of the hope, especially in, in the Middle East during this period of time where everything for this virgin was, 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 was put together in this, in this wedding. All of her hope all of her future, all of her protection, all of her sources of, of income, all of the ways that she is going to be taken care of in this wedding is all of a sudden come to naught because the bridegroom, as he's getting ready to come and to, and to consummate the marriage and to make the vows and all of these kinds of things, he's killed and taken away from her. And Joel is saying that what is happening in this land is a call for you to grieve deeply over the devastation that has taken place in your relationship with God. He says six verses later in verse 14, consecrate a fast. Don't just go without food, but make it a fast. Where in going without food and going without water, if that's you know the kind of fast that they choose, to, to focus on the greatness of God and allow the desire for, for drink and the desire for, for food to, to create in you a desire for God. And Joe calls for the people to see the looming devastation. To see the looming devastation that the, that the locusts, in the way that they, they, they march through the fields, is, is just metaphor even though a very physical, tangible metaphor, it's just a metaphor for the Babylonian army and that drought for the siege that they're going to lay to Jerusalem. He's calling for the people to see that looming devastation and to return from, uh, to God who is their salvation. He is calling them to repent. And in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Yet even now, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. You know, you can always tell when, when somebody really is not sorry for what they've done. You know, they've, 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 they've done something that's, that, that, that's kind of devastating to a lot of people. Maybe it's a spouse or maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a parent. And, and you can kind of tell that, well, you know, they feel pretty bad about what happened, but you kind of get the feeling that they're a little bit more upset that they got caught than that they actually did anything that devastated somebody else's life. And so there's not a lot of mourning. There's not, not a lot of deep grief. There, there's not a lot of, you, you know, going without food because you lost your appetite after you've seen just the kind of wretchedness that you've brought into your own life, into the life of people that you love. And yet you see it all the time that people, I just want to put it behind you. I just want to, for, I, you know, I'm asking for forgiveness and I want to be able to move on. What God is saying to His people is that don't do that. Don't do that. 
I want you to return to me, not because you got caught and your you know bad things are happening. Return to me with all your heart. With the proper kind of emotions that the kind of, of life that you've been living calls for. Don't just tear... You, you know, one of the ways that people show that they were mourning and fasting and lamenting and all of that in the, the Old Testament and the New Testament times in the Middle East was to, to tear their clothes. You know, mess up their hair and tear their clothes. He's saying, just don't, don't tear your clothes. Tear your heart. Allow your heart to just be driven apart. Fragmented. Divided. It's so broken. I just think one of the amazing facts about God is that there is always time to repent. Until there is no longer time to repent. The main point of the prodigal son parable is what? That God wants that son who has made terrible decisions and has even wished his own father to be dead and has taken you know, the family down a terrible path and has put them in financial crisis by taking part of what... His, his inheritance is going to be and spending that in a foreign land and not keeping it contained within the family unit and the family fortune and the family property protected. He has taken it. He's gone down a lifestyle that get down the path of a lifestyle that is, that is not in any way connected to the way that he was raised up. It is not spiritual. It is the opposite of that. He has insulted his family and yet what happens when he finally comes to his senses and repents and turns around and comes back from the foreign country to the, the, to the front porch, to the driveway of his father's house? His father runs. I mean, this is so un-Middle Eastern patriarch to, to run. No, no, Patriarchs run to no one. People run to them. And yet, the opportunity for repentance and the hope of a restoration of a relationship and reconciliation is so great that that, that father in that story runs down that path and tackles that boy and, and, and loves him and kisses him. Why, 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 after all that that boy did, did that father kiss him? How could he kiss him? It's because every day, in his mind, he had been kissing that boy's face. Wanted him back. And that other son, that older son, who refuses to come back, will not go into that party, makes the father come out to him. Even that one, who wants the father only for what he can get out of the father as well, he, the father even goes out to him and tries to bring him in. Over and over and over in Scripture, God is calling His people to return to Him. And the reason, there is always hope. There's always hope. There's always hope. And going without food and going without the, 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 the water was a reminder, was a reminder to them that man does not live by bread alone. And that God desires to live among His people. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, the prophet says, It will come about after this that I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out My Spirit in those days. 
And believe it or not, those days did come. We speed forward to the first century A.D. It's been 50 days since Jesus had been crucified. It had been 10 days since He had ascended into heaven. And Jesus, uh, in that 40 days that He showed Himself, Luke talks about it in Acts chapter 1, that He showed Himself many convincing proofs that He was alive and, and taught His disciples. During that 40 days, He reminds them constantly, stay in Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed on high. And now the day of Pentecost rolls around. And all of a sudden, those uh, 12 apostles, the 11 original ones and the one that was added, begin to speak in tongues as the sound of a mighty rushing wind blows through the temple grounds. And all of the people rush and they hear these guys speaking and all of, they've come from all over the world and speak all kinds of different languages. But what they're hearing is the Gospel spoken in their own language. And what they're hearing are these apostles talking about the way that you come back to God. Now, not everybody is on board with this. There are some that started making fun because it's 9 o'clock in the morning and they say, you know what? What's happening here is pretty hilarious. These guys are just drunk. And Peter hears it. And he says, hey, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. There's, there's nobody drunk here. Let me tell you what this is. And he quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He says, this is Joel chapter 2 coming true. And he talks about the Christ. And you remember the sermon there in Acts chapter 2. And after the people hear what it is that all of these events that they did not understand. Remember those guys on the road to Emmaus. They didn't understand what, what the crucifixion was all about. They thought that Christ was the one that was going to restore the nation of Israel. They're, they don't even know that Jesus is walking beside them. But then all of a sudden Jesus, using the Scripture, begins to explain to them how the Messiah had to suffer and to die on the cross and to be raised on the third day and so on and so forth. And they begin to get it. They, there had been people that had seen all of these things around them taking place 50 days prior and they didn't get it. And all of a sudden Peter stands up because the Spirit has been poured on him and he preaches a sermon that explains, he as a prophet is explaining to them what those, those, those pieces of history, those events, those acts in history really meant. And what does the Bible say that happened to the heart of those people? Their hearts were rent. Their hearts were torn. Their hearts were cut. And they say, what do we have to do? And Jesus says, or, or Peter says, this is what you do. You repent. You repent. You come to your senses and you come back to God. These are guys that realized that that even though Joel is talking about a time when when the prophets were showing up and helping people to be focused towards God and, and, and God was, was among His people and God was manifesting Himself among His people, they, they still, you know, had, they, they had still gotten off course. And now God has come back with, among His people in the incarnation. It's God Himself in the flesh. Not 50% God, 50% man. 100% God, 100% man. The incarnation is a mystery. 
And somehow in their thinking, in their understanding, and the way that they saw life, and the vision of the future, and all of that, they, in their thinking, in their intelligence, in their logic, in their cognitive processes, they had come to the place where they not only rejected God, but they had killed Him on the cross. And yet, even as bad as that is, God still wants them. And they go, what do we do? And Peter says, you have to repent. Come back to your senses and return, return. And be baptized. Be baptized. For the remission of your sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. And God will put His Spirit in them. In you. In you. You think about friendship. You think about the intimacy of a husband and wife. The things that they share together. The, the, the secrets that they have together. The things that they, they share with one another that they share with nobody else. The same with friendships. Best friends share things with each other, whether they're experiences or resources or whatever it might be, that they share with nobody else. And here it is that God is showing, not that He just, it's not that He just wants His people. But He wants His people in relationship. He's giving them His Spirit. He is, that's an intimate act. He is, it, he is giving them a piece of Himself. He's inside of them so that they can be in Him. He tells them to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Their sins to be washed away and God will put His Spirit in them. And how ironic that a verse quoted from a prophet, Joel, who is speaking about plagues and famine and, and drought and fruitlessness in empty barns, that this verse again is spoken on the day of Pentecost, which is the celebration of harvest. It's a celebration of first fruits. That it's a celebration of the expected abundance that comes from God. And the first fruits can be given to him because of the promise of more to come. Joel, I think, speaks even to our day. Joel, Joel is saying, number one, that there, there are things that happen in your life, and maybe you'll never know if God's hand was directly behind it or not, but you understand without a shadow of a doubt that when you have the hands on the management of your life, when your hands are on the wheel of, on the wheelhouse of your life, that you steer it in wrong directions and you get it off course, and there are times that you crash into things, and that your life is not perfect. And that there are times in which your life goes off course in such a way that it causes devastation not only to you emotionally and sometimes physically, but even to the people around you. And Joel is saying that when those kinds of things happen in your life, whether you have done it or somebody else has done it or somewhere behind the scenes, God is working, you know without a shadow of a doubt that your life with the way that it's going right now and the way that it is managed right now is a train wreck. And the message of Joel is, is that when you begin to have those eyes that see and those ears that hear the call of God and the place of God and the position of God and the locality of God in your life and His desire to have you, 
to be with you and you with Him and to die for you and to love you and to bless you and to protect you and to take care of you and to give you that abundant life, what you see is instead of a life that is going to continually go off course and go off track and be derailed and crash into things that it had no business crashing in the first place, that there is now a life of hope. But at some point you have to see the profoundness of, of, of your own sin. But not to despair when you place it next to the profoundness of the love of God who not only matches the profoundness and the significance and the depth of your sin with the depth and the profoundness and the greatness of His love, but trumps it. Where your life brings devastation and death. His love swallows it up. And then regardless of how old you are or where you might be or how much time you have left, whether the destruction is imminent and the loom is there, the looming uh, uh, doom is there, it's not a time to lay your head on the ground and think. It's, it's a time to respond to the Gospel. That God in Christ Jesus was reconciling to Himself everything. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there are ways that we can minister to you tonight, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Maybe it's to become a Christian. Maybe it's to write your path as a Christian. Maybe you've been off course and you need to get it righted. These shepherds are going to be down here at the front to counsel with you and to pray with you. Come now and talk to them as we stand and praise God together.